A national leader makes no more consequential decision whether or not to send their country's military to war. On April 2nd, 1982, the government of the United Kingdom was presented with exactly this dilemma when Argentina seized the Falkland Islands. While the militaries of Argentina and the UK seemed, and indeed were, hopelessly mismatched, Argentina appeared to have one formidable ally, geography. Any attempt by the UK to recover the Falklands would take place at the end of the longest and frailest supply line in the history of warfare, 12,500 kilometres of open sky and empty ocean. When the Royal Navy Task Force sailed from Portsmouth on April 5th, it was three weeks from confronting its enemy. This is the third and final episode of this special series of The Foreign Desk, speaking to people who were in the room when big decisions got made, often with incomplete information, usually amid shifting circumstances, rarely with any certainty as to the outcome. History is made for better and for worse by anxious people hoping for the best, a bit like souffles. How prepared was the UK government for the events of 1982? What was Margaret Thatcher like at receiving bad news? And how do you make decisions when the room you're in is the bridge of a sinking frigate? This is the Foreign Desk in the room. There was an analysis of what the likely cost of repossession would be, something between 250,000 dead and three-quarters of a million. I remember I said at the time that if the fleet didn't sail, this government will fall, because such was the reputation of the country and the government riding on these issues that I don't think that Mrs Thatcher could have survived if she had abandoned our interest in the Falklands. There was this wonderful historic moment when Admiral Sir Henry Leach, the first Sea Lord, arrived uninvited in his full uniform with all the egolets and gold bits and so on, and... Having listened to the conversation for quite a short time, he intervened with a very sailorly, salty kind of intervention. What's the point of having a bloody navy if you're not prepared to use it? You're listening to The Foreign Desk in the Room. I'm Andrew Muller. Well, joining me first of all here in the studio is Lord Heseltine, a British politician who served as Secretary of State for Defence from 1983 to 1986 and as Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 1995 to 1997. At the time of the Falklands crisis, Lord Heseltine was serving in Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher's Cabinet as Secretary of State for the Environment. Lord Heseltine, thanks for joining us. Thinking back to 1982, can you recall how Cabinet was informed of the situation? What happens is that you have, on the agenda of every Cabinet, there is an item of foreign affairs. And here the Foreign Secretary would lead an analysis of the news or events that were influencing British self-interest. So beyond reading the newspapers or listening to the news, one would be kept up to speed. But the truth of the matter is that you'd be kept up to speed by the news coverage rather than the foreign secretary because the news coverage is 24 hours, cabinet meets once a week. And in the particular context of the Falklands War, there was a war cabinet which was, of course, involved the defence secretary, foreign secretary, prime minister, chancellor, 
and anyone with a particular interest, and they met independently and regularly, the Cabinet would have continued to meet once a week. Within the wider Cabinet, though, was there any discussion at the time of a a diplomatic solution to the crisis, or was the government fixed on the idea of a, a military response from the off? No, there was certainly a series of analyses as to differing options as the events unfolded. There was certainly not a predisposition to go to war. That would have been the last option that the Cabinet would have wanted to achieve. And in the end, it was the option that it was forced to take. But it would be ludicrous to pretend that there was a sort of gung-ho approach saying, let's go to war, boys. That would have been ridiculous. But within the the wider cabinet and the parliamentary party, once it became clear that this was going to be resolved militarily, was there any discussion of what failure might mean, both for the country and for the party? Did you feel like the government was on the line here? I wouldn't use the words government on the line. I would say that the cabinet was united, that in the circumstances of the illegal occupation of British territory, the military advice had to be followed, which is that the option of repossession was available to us. There was an analysis of what the likely cost of repossession would be, which was presented by the Cabinet by Admiral Lord Lewin, and I remember quite vividly what that was. We will secure the island's Prime Minister The casualty range is something between 250 and 750. In the event, the lower estimate proved fortunately more accurate. When we were confronted with the decision, there was only one dissenting voice, and that was John Biffin, who thought it was unwise. The rest of the cabinet was united. And I I remember I said at the time that if the fleet didn't sail, this government will fall because such was the reputation of the country and the government riding on these issues that I don't think that Mrs Thatcher could have survived if she had abandoned our interest in the Falklands. You succeeded John Knott as Secretary of State for Defence in in 1983, though, a matter of months, really, after the war. How had it transformed the department, if at all, or or what lessons were learnt from that or that you took into the role? Well, there was one very important lesson that I came face to face with when I became Defence Secretary. And this was the lesson that Lord Louis Mountbatten, who was deeply involved, obviously, after the end of the Second World War, confronted. And that was the split responsibilities within the ministry between Navy, Army and Air Force. And they were three independent groupings of power with the Secretary of State having to make often lonely decisions between their differing priorities. And Lord Lurie proposed to bring them under a unified command. And every defence secretary since then had tried to do exactly the same. But such were the pressures within the military that there was no consensus as to how to do it. Well, I did it. And it was a very lonely and difficult decision. I worked out the structure with my private secretary and I told the chief of the defence staff who acted in a coordinating but not a powerful role of my decision without consulting him, which he understandably was very cross about. And so I completed the Mountbatten reforms 
The military were very indignant. They took the decision to Margaret, but I'd got there first because I said to the Prime Minister, look, Margaret, this has been festering since the end of the Second World War. It needs to be done. I'm prepared to do it, but I can tell you the military will be into number 10 Downing Street within hours demanding that you reverse it. And so there's absolutely no point in me making these decisions, which will be controversial and unpleasant, unless you're going to back me. And Margaret said, of course, you're right, I will back you. And she did. I mean, looking back, it's a very serious issue, and no one has undone the reforms that I introduced. But there was one, well, it's one of those moments which makes you you smile in politics, uh, although it was serious at the time. I got this letter signed by the chiefs. Dear Secretary of State, We find it difficult to overstate our admiration for the dedication that you have brought to this job, and blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And, of course, we see why you have made these remarkable changes, blah, 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 until the last paragraph. But in peacetime, Secretary of State, there is much to commend your arrangements, but the problem is that they won't work in wartime. And I remember laughing out loud when I saw this because it was such a patently obvious political ploy to appeal to a wider audience in the battle that was going to happen. Of course, the battle never did happen because I'd already taken the decision. And that was why, to my enormous regret, I didn't consult Dwyn Bramwell before I announced the change because I knew that he could not avoid consulting the rest of the chiefs. And I knew that they would consult all their friends, particularly those in the House of Lords, and I would be facing a barrage of criticism from their friends in the media. So in the end, in public life and politics, you have to occasionally be quite ruthless. And I decided that what effectively was um, 30 years of prevarication had to be brought to an end, and I did it. (laughs) But the other thing that is interesting about that period, the speed with which the Falklands War moved from the headlines. I was sent to the Ministry of Defence for two reasons. One was to get a grip on expenditure, and the other was to lead the counter-attack against the campaign for nuclear disarmament, which had been suppressed, the campaign, by the Falklands War. Obviously, the national interest was very rightly focused on that. But the moment the war was successfully concluded, the campaign for nuclear disarmament became the big political issue. I want to pick up that point you make about the conflict fading from headlines relatively quickly because a conventional wisdom has settled since that the victory in the Falklands was a, a triumphant restoration of, of British pride and prestige. Did it feel like that at the time? No, it's no doubt, no doubt at all. It had exactly that view. And one of the areas where I think it was very significant was with, within the NATO alliance and particularly the Americans. The American position over the Falklands was difficult Mm. because everybody talks about our special relationship. The truth is America has lots of special relationships and some of them apply to their allies in South America. So what would have been the State Department advice to the president faced with a, a former colonial power 
trying to assert itself in the South Atlantic against the interests of Argentina and perhaps other South American countries. So President Reagan was very lukewarm or indecisive about what to do. And it was Cap Weinberger, the American mm. Defense Secretary, who was the decisive figure in bringing the Americans out on our side. But having seen the decision and decisiveness of the British response and the ultimate professionalism of the military achievement undoubtedly did a lot to restore the image of this country as uh, someone you didn't muck about with. Lord Heseltine, thank you very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk in the Room. Joining me here in the studio is Sir David Omand, a British former senior civil servant who served as director of the UK Government Communications Headquarters from 1996 to 1997. During the Falklands crisis, Sir David was serving as principal private secretary to the Secretary of State for Defence, John Knott. Sir David, I guess the place to start is at the start. So tell us a bit about what you were doing in April 1982. I was the principal private secretary to John Knott, who was then the Secretary of State for Defence. The big issue was the purchase of the Trident strategic Mm. missile system by the UK, the D-5 missile. And John and I were working in his room in the House of Commons on his speech to announce that this is what we were going to do for our national deterrent. And this runner arrived from the Defence Intelligence staff with a locked briefcase, and in it was a folder with three decrypted Argentine naval signals that GCHQ had brilliantly managed to not only intercept but decipher. And the import of these signals was pretty obvious. I'd started my career at GCHQ. I was used to reading these things. And the message from the signals essentially was by the end of the week an Argentine task force will have landed on the Falklands and taken them over. And there's nothing we can do to stop them. So John and I looked at each other with that sinking feeling, and we both kind of realised this is existential for the Thatcher government. Mm. So we rushed down the corridor, literally rushed down the corridor of the House of Commons, and thankfully she was in her room. So we burst in on her and said, Prime Minister, you've got to see these. So she read the signals, and I'll never forget, she looked me straight in the eye and said, this is very serious, isn't it? To which there is only one answer with a straight face, which is, yes, Prime Minister. And she was instantly on the uptake. I was very impressed. She immediately said, I must speak to the President, that is Ronald Mm. Reagan, and get him to stop this madness. And Number 10 Downing Street, of course, fixed that with the White House. But the junta under General Galtieri wouldn't take the call from the President of the United States. Repeatedly, they tried to put him through, and they just wouldn't take the call. They were obviously frightened they'd have their arm twisted around their backs in order to stop this invasion. And around this time, what was John not saying privately? Was he surprised? Was there any indication that the Argentinians were preparing a manoeuvre like this? No, the focus was on the islands of South Georgia, where some scrap metal merchants from Argentina had landed without permission. And that looked like a stunt in order to get a bit of a crisis going. But the idea that the Argentines would have in secret 
prepared this force and launched it, that did come as a terrible surprise. Among the cabinet in particular, were there recriminations, arguments, finger pointing over how this could possibly have happened? Or did everybody get past that pretty quickly and focused on what needed to be done? The focus on what are we going to do next was pretty intense. To her great credit, Margaret Thatcher didn't start blaming the Joint Intelligence Committee or her Foreign Secretary or anyone else. It was a focus on getting out of the situation. But, of course, the Joint Intelligence Committee had sometime earlier actually issued a warning saying that if the Argentine junta were to conclude that the negotiations which were going on extremely slowly, if they concluded it wasn't going anywhere, then they might well take matters into their own hand. But the Joint Intelligence Committee had sort of thought the crunch point would come in the autumn rather than in the spring. So when it happened in April, it was a terrible shock. And for you, from the point of view of somebody who was there when this was going on, can you recall a particular moment at which it became clear that, you know, we're actually doing this, we're going to war, this is happening? Yes, it's probably not the moment that most people think of, because after we'd shown her the uh, intercepted signals, and as it were, she was on notice that by the end of the week we might have lost the Falklands, A rolling meeting started in her office in the House of Commons. And as word spread, you know, ministers arrived, senior officials and diplomats arrived. The mood was very downbeat. Indeed, without saying so, it was obvious that most of them thought this was the end of Margaret Thatcher as prime minister, the humiliation of this happening. And then there was this wonderful historic moment when Admiral Sir Henry Leach, the first sea lord, arrived uninvited, but he'd heard through the Ministry of Defence this meeting was taking place. He arrived in the House of Commons in his full uniform with all the egolets and the gold bits and so on. He'd been presenting the prizes somewhere at a naval college. So he arrived, and having listened to the conversation for quite a short time, he intervened with a very sailorly, salty kind of intervention, which I'll spare your listeners some of. (laughs) It was essentially, what's the point of having a bloody navy if you're not prepared to use it? And everyone turned to look, what do you mean? And he said, we could put a task force to sea. The point is that, yes, we could do that, and we did do that. And that saved the day. She was able to announce on the Saturday after the invasion that she had already ordered a task force to see that, plus the resignation of Peter Carrington, the foreign secretary over Mm. the affair, was enough to placate her pretty unhappy backbenchers. But at that stage, the thought was the task force would set sail The Argentine junta would see it coming. The international community would be woken up and there would be some kind of peace deal. The Argentine government would be persuaded with some American help to withdraw. A new settlement could be reached. And it was really a little bit later on, a few days later, when it began to sink in that this wasn't going to happen. The junta was absolutely hard over 
and the humiliation for the junta of withdrawing, having invaded, would have been just too much for them. So at this point, it was becoming clear we were going to have to fight. And I remember the meeting that Margaret Thatcher had with her chiefs of staff and the Commandant General of the Royal Marines, at which the Royal Marines explained what they do in these circumstances, that they would land, establish a beachhead and put up the Union Jack again. So the Union Jack would be once more flying over the Falkland Islands. And I'll never forget Margaret Thatcher interrupting very forcibly, saying, but that's not what I want. We must have the islands returned to British sovereignty. Landing a beachhead and then negotiating is not what it's about. At which point, of course, the military advice was you haven't got the troops on your task force to do that. And that's when John Knott and I found ourselves in the office of the Secretary of State for Trade combing through lists of uh, passenger ships that were fast enough to catch up with the task force and which would British flagged and which were available. And that's how, for example, the QE2 came to be involved. But at that point, once it's become clear that there is going to be some sort of battle at the other end of it, does it dawn on the people involved in this, especially John Knott, what an extraordinary and in many respects unlikely escapade this is? This is literally sailing around to the other side of the world at the end of the longest supply line in military history to try and wage a conflict for which there isn't really a plan B. Oh, yes. I mean, there was no doubt that all the ministers, but particularly mine, John Knott, was very conscious that this was a very risky endeavour. He was left in no doubt by the chiefs of staff and particularly the chief of the naval staff about the sort of losses that the task force would be likely to incur. And those were presented to the prime minister and the war cabinet. You know, are you ready to proceed on this basis? So there was no, no attempt to uh, minimise just how difficult all of this was going to be. And, of course, it was made very much worse by the subsequent loss of ships like the Atlantic Conveyor, which had some of the vital helicopters and other supplies on board. But at those moments, what was the mood like in the rooms you were in when, when Atlantic Conveyor is lost and when some of the warships are lost, Coventry, Ardent, Sheffield? I think... To describe that is to describe something that's indescribable. Mm. It's that feeling that this is for real. It's one of those you have to pinch yourself moments. In the first few days when the task force was being assembled and when it had sailed from Portsmouth, there was a sort of unreality about it all. But when the first casualties were incurred, then it became very clear we'd have to fight this through to a finish. And when decisions were made that it was well understood would lead to likely and perhaps significant loss of life even among the enemy, and I'm talking, of course, about the decision to order HMS Conqueror to sink the cruise of the General Belgrano, which was Argentina's single greatest loss of life of the conflict, what was the mood in the hours and days after something like that? What did people say about it? I guess what I'm wondering is, was there any triumphalism or anything like that among the people who'd had to make that decision? Oh, quite the reverse, quite the reverse. People were horrified by the loss of life, which the professionals knew this is what armed conflict is like. When ships are hit, you will get casualties. 
The War Cabinet changed the rules of engagement on HMS Conqueror, which authorised it to engage. It had been trailing the uh, Belgrano. That was part of a, we knew from secret intelligence from GCHQ's intercepts, that there was a three-pronged attack had been ordered by Admiral Anaya, the head of the Argentine Navy, on the task force. A group in the north with the carrier, a group in the centre, and a group in the south, which is the Belgrano group. So from those signals, it was very clear that the Argentines had decided to attack the task force mm. in strength. And you have only one duty if you're a minister at that stage, which is the protection of your own forces. So it was a very natural change of rule of engagement to allow this. Now, subsequently, of course, we discovered that the uh, weather in the north, they couldn't launch the Super 8 on the aircraft to attack the carriers. So they called the whole thing off for a day or two. They didn't change their mind. It was still an aggressive intent. But, of course, that subsequently led to all the fuss about, you know, was the General Belgrano sunk to scupper a peace plan and so on, which is all complete nonsense and was established as nonsense finally when the official history of the campaign was written by Professor Friedman. Was there much discussion among John Knott and other ministers about the possibility or consequences of failure? Did anybody at any point say, what do we do if this doesn't work? I think it would be fair to say that they anguished about that in private. But the public view was we launched the task force. It was capable, although it was very risky, but it was capable of carrying out its mission. The chief of defence staff in particular, Admiral Lewin, would have been the first to point out if he'd thought it couldn't be done. And, you know, it was, he was clear that it could be done, although there would be losses and it would be risky. So there wasn't a plan B. You've since written quite a lot about crisis management and, and what to do and how to think and how to react when you find yourself in one of these rooms where these decisions are being made. What did you learn from being in these rooms? What did your up-close experience of the Falklands conflict teach you? Well, first of all, you have to organise how you are going to take decisions. In the case of the uh, Falklands and it's been repeated subsequently, you have a ministerial group, a war cabinet. You have an official group at a very senior level which is preparing papers for the ministers. A lot of analysis is commissioned and done. It's a very rational process because what you don't want is chaotic decisions being taken or decisions taken in different places. So you have to organise for a crisis and the Thatcher way of doing it, I think, was absolutely right. I did sense that she took away one very important lesson, which unfortunately mm. quite a few current politicians have not yet learned, which is that you may be very important very high up. You may even be the prime minister. But whether or not your policy succeeds or fails is in the hands of other people. And you've got to accept and sort of sit back and realise you've cast the die. The task force is at sea. It's got a very good commander-in-chief. You've got a good chief of defence. You've got to leave it to them. There was one moment when the prime minister was getting very agitated after the first landings had taken place. And some days passed 
and there was no news of a sort of breakout from the bridgehead. And she was worried that uh, momentum was being lost and that unhelpful voices on peace processes and so on might intervene. So she was anxious to see progress. And at one stage, she was quite ready to order the replacement of the brigadier in charge on the ground. And I overheard this wonderful conversation where her deputy prime minister, the wonderful Willie Whitelaw, won the military cross in 1944. Very experienced politician, and he'd been through this on the ground himself. And he leant over and whispered to her, Margaret, you've got to trust the man on the spot. He may be right, he may be wrong. In this case, he may be wrong. But it's not for you to take this on yourself. And she took that advice. And I think she probably did realise that the success or failure of this operation was in hands that she'd never met and didn't know. But uh, they had their orders, they had their um, rules of engagement. It was up to them. You've got to recognise that somewhere out there, somebody you've never heard of is going to make a decision that will either make or break you. Sir David, thank you for joining us. That was Sir David Omand, former director of GCHQ. His book, How to Survive a Crisis, Lessons in Resilience and Avoiding Disaster, is available now. You're listening to The Foreign Desk in the Room with me, Andrew Muller. I'm joined now by Lord West, retired Royal Navy Admiral and former First Sea Lord and Chief of the Naval Staff. During the Falklands War, Lord West held the rank of Commander and was Captain of HMS Ardent. He was the last man to leave the ship before she was sunk by Argentine aircraft in May 1982. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for his actions. Lord West, I want to ask, first of all, where you were and what you were doing when you first heard that Argentina had invaded the Falkland Islands on April 2nd, 1982. I was in my garden trying to plant some runner beans. <laughs> um, and my wife came out and told me my ship had been, we'd come out of Refit in the January. And we'd done a big workup that was done at Portland in those days in very, very cold, icy weather. And then we deployed up to North Norway to take part in a big amphibious exercise with Invincible and Fearless and those ships, many of which we were then with down south. I laid a wreath on the previous Ardent that had been sunk with the Glorious Nacasta by the Scharnhorst and Gneisenau in 1940, because no one had ever laid a wreath on it before inside the Arctic Circle, then headed back down south to go back to my base port, which is Devonport. Uh, on the way down, we hit some amazingly bad weather and I damaged my gun. I uh, came into Devonport and then I was looking forward to a nice few weeks of sitting there getting fixed and all sorts of things. Uh, the dockyard mateys came aboard, looked at the gun and sucked their teeth and said, ooh, it'll take about 18 weeks or so. Then the Argentinians invaded the Falklands. The dockyard mateys came on and said, we'll have it fixed in two days, sir. <laughs> so, uh, it was quite interesting, really. So that's where I was. And then, of course, when I realised that had happened, I linked back in very quickly to see what state the ship was in. I was taken up to Northwood to talk with the people up there, the prime minister. They'd said they were going to sail the task group. I clearly couldn't go with the first wave because of repairs and other bits and pieces, and I went about 10 days later. Well, that's a, a partial answer to the next question I wanted to ask, which was after you'd absorbed the news that Argentina had taken the Falklands, what was your first understanding that the government of the United Kingdom was determined to do something about this and that a task force would actually be sailing? 
I have to say, I thought, well, you know, there have been lots of saber rattling and all sorts of things happening in the past. Would anything happen? But when I went up to Northwood, as I say, I went up to Northwood and I discovered that the government had released just over two billion pounds worth of money from the reserve. This was 1982. Two billion was quite a lot more than it is two billion today. And when I realized how much they'd released, and when I looked at some of the detail and thought about the Argentine and their desire to have them all Venus and the fact that all their fast jet pilots were racing car drivers, basically, I thought, then this is going to happen. I don't think my ship's company did, I have to say. But I thought we are actually going to go and there will be a fight, I think. How different is preparing for a mission like that, if at all, from the normal operations a ship like Ardent was undertaking? And I'm, I'm wondering not just about logistically in terms of what you have to make sure you have, but psychologically as well. You said that you weren't sure the ship's company had quite apprehended that there was likely to be a fight at the other end of this trip. I mean, I think they thought this is all exciting stuff, and you know, but I don't think they definitely thought that there would be fighting and ships being sunk. That didn't sink home until Sheffield was hit. But the sorts of things that happen, and this happened to me before in the Navy when they fight someone, if you're in a private ship, which is what you call a frigate like mine, driven by a baby commander, which I was, when there's going to be a war, suddenly on the jetty appears a doctor blinking his eyes because you don't normally have a doctor. So a doctor rolls up, and then the next thing is a padre rolls up. And when you've got a doctor and a padre both roll up, you know, this is getting quite serious. And then the other things like there was a new type of torpedo anti-submarine torpedo called the Stingray. And the uh, boffins came down and said, we'd like to give you these torpedoes for you to use down there. And we had to train up our anti-submarine warfare people, both the helicopter and those firing from ship launch tubes, about this new torpedo, the Stingray, which is absolutely brand new, never been tried. You take on extra weapons. We took on more ammunition than we'd normally take, for example. But basically, I mean, otherwise, no, I mean, the, the routines and the drills and the training and everything prepare you to go and fight your weapon systems. But I still don't think they really thought we're going to have ships lost and there's going to be a proper fight. And the mood did change when Sheffield was hit. There's no doubt about it. And indeed, when Belgrano was sunk as well, um, they suddenly realized this was for real. And they started listening to me and what I've been saying as being absolutely gospel, you know. But at that point, when it's begun to become clear to you that the ship's company now understand that this is very much for real, what's different for you at that point as a captain? How, how do you manage the mood on the ship? Obviously, high morale and confidence is good, but is there a concern about, I don't know, complacency or not taking the threat seriously? I think uh, you've got to make sure that, you know, I, I made sure that people were briefed about what the threat was. The, the primary threat really was fast jets. Uh, and we knew that close to shore, we weren't actually that good at taking on fast jets because the government had never given us the systems that we asked for in the Navy to be able to fight them. Um, the other threat then was submarines. And we knew basically our Navy was good at anti-submarine warfare. The only thing is the waters down there were very, very difficult. But we knew that meant they'd be difficult for their submarines. I was able to talk these things through with my with my officers, my command team, and also with sailors. I went down to Mestex and chatted with uh, with sailors. It's interesting, for example, we had a, a towed torpedo decoy called the 182, which was old Ming, really, because the Soviet torpedoes had become much cleverer, and so it wasn't really effective against them. But the, the Argentinians were using old torpedoes, and it would work. And so the 182, which I'd never really known it to work properly in my ship, to be quite honest, because the junior maintainer was put in charge of it, suddenly a very senior maintainer 
and another one got interested in it because this might be the saving grace for the ship and it worked constantly until our ship was sunk so people did focus on what were important things to make sure they worked and could fight with and of course we did exercises in terms of air attacks and things like that and these things make a difference i mean it was uh, interesting. Uh, sadly, after my ship was sunk, you know, I had a lot of letters from next of kin and things. And I, I remember several of them said, you know, my son always said how pleased he was to be in your ship because you knew what you were doing and you were going to get them through it because you were so professional. So that is an important thing to get across to them. Once Arden reaches the Falklands, what level of independence do you have at that point about what you can do with the ship? What kind of decisions are you making day to day? Well, the only independence you've got is, is, is fighting your ship as an individual unit. I mean, we arrived down off the Falklands. I mean, it's an incredible sight, actually, when the, the amphibious group and the carrier battle groups all joined together outside the TEZ, the total exclusion zone. I'd never seen that many Brit ships all together at sea, uh, you know, with the carriers and with the amphibs and all this sort of thing. There was a lot of cross-decking going on. Then we formed up as the escort for the amphibious group, very much told what we were going to do. And we led the amphibious group into Falkland Sound through between the two islands. Uh, and we went on down further south. And my task was to provide shore bombardment to mislead the Argentinians, but also support special forces who were carrying out actions against the Argentinians at Goose Green. And my gun had the range to be able to do that. Although I had to go right in amongst the kelp beds, which was quite exciting because our charts were not very good, believe it or not, even though we'd owned the Falklands for years. Basically, our survey squadrons had done brilliant surveys of Montserrat and St. Kitts and Barbados. Surprise, surprise, but hadn't done such quite good survey work off the Falklands. <laughs> a little bit more unpleasant. Um, so uh, the charts said things like, you know, dragons lurk here and things like that, rather than actually depths of water. And in amongst the kelp, it was exciting. But I'd been told very firmly that was my role, was to go there and do that bombardment. And I went and did that. And then, of course, there were air attacks, which you then had to counter. But you always had to ask permission to do things. Once I'd finished my bombardment role, I uh, had to ask the Commodore of the Amphibious Forces, you know, I'd finished bombardment, where would you like me to go? And he told me to go in the centre of the sound to split air attacks coming from the south, which is what I did. There's one final decision that I, I, I wanted to ask you about, and it is the inevitable one. It's Arden is hit by Argentinian aircraft on, on May 21st. I, I'm wondering if you can recall how your thinking progressed from understanding we've been hit to we're going to sink. Well, it was progressive because we were hit by um, some bombs, then hit by some bombs that didn't go off, and then hit by some more bombs. And trying to get the information, that is one thing that's bad. When you're in a a warship compared with being infantry, for example, everything's very controlled because you can all speak to each other, talk to each other. If the captain says port 15, the whole ship goes port 15. If an infantry officer stands up and says, come on, men, maybe some of them get up, some of them don't. You know, it's that sort of thing. Uh, but the moment you're hit, it's far worse. The ability to communicate and talk was very poor. I got fed up with alarms. I mean, having huge, loud alarms telling you that there was a problem I didn't actually need to know there was a problem. I'd seen my CCAT launcher be blown in the air. I'd seen one of my doctor being blown out on the port side, out about 50 yards off the ship. You know, we were on fire. There were explosions going on. And to have an alarm bell telling me that actually I had a problem with my gyro and a problem with my steering and a problem. And the, the noise, the cacophony of that, plus jets coming over very low because they were scared to go higher. So when they went high, you could shoot them down. And the bombs going off was really loud to try and 
get your mind around it and then what actually is the damage trying to get a clear picture of the damage was very very difficult but slowly of course i got my heads the remaining heads of department who were alive together and and said right let's go through what what exactly is you know what is the position and we finally went through it all and i made the decision that actually there's nothing i could do to save the ship and the ship couldn't fight anyway because it had pretty well lost its weapon systems and that it was uh, made sense to abandon ship at that stage and that's when the decision was made but that was very hard decision because it goes rather against the grain already earlier there'd been a bit of a panic by some people and shouting abandon ship and i had to grab a chap who ran up the ladder and sort of give him a shake and throw him back down the ladder and he returned to his post you know and was all right but it's a difficult decision really and just finally, finally, I, I have read in a number of places that you were the last man off Arden. Was that a decision you made quite consciously once you'd given the order to abandon ship that you decided it was important that you be seen to be the last man to leave? Yeah, I mean, that's what you do if you're captain of a ship. And I, the other thing I did, of course, was got the master at arms and another one. I wanted them to check that there was no one alive left on board the ship. And they went round and did all of that. And I was on the bridge while that was going, while people were going off. And then finally, they reported there wasn't anyone alive still, and the fires were getting worse. And it was important to get Yarmouth, who had taken my sailors off the bow, away. Some of the sailors were in the sea. They'd been picked up by helicopters. And so I said, right, off we go then, boys. And they went, and it was that then that I thought, thought Christ, she still hasn't sunk. I don't think I want to go. And, and I know it's just a stupid thing. And, and actually, three of them grabbed me and dragged me down to the forecastle, and then, then I said, oh, no, I'm, I'm, and they stepped over, and, and I stepped off last, you know, that was, a, that was the thing, but it was a terribly sad moment, because you, you know, your ship is your grey mistress, you love her, and it seemed like, you know, banning her was a pretty awful thing to do, really. Uh, I thought Lord, my wife was a bit harsh when I got home, I know she didn't mean it, but she said, shouldn't you have gone down with your ship, which I thought, <laughs> that's nice, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but she's from an old military family, you say. <laughs> uh, Lord West, thank you very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. And that's it for this third and final episode of The Foreign Desk in the Room. You can catch up with the previous two wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. We'll be back with The Foreign Desk next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle Magazine and to our free daily email Email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>